Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. In the cold winter of 1989, a Sabat pack who has suffered an immeasurable loss is given an ultimatum. Go to the Twin Cities of Minnesota, investigate why a deeply embedded pack has stopped reporting back, or meet their final death. This is Vampire the Masquerade, Twin Cities by Night, Sorrow, a tale of loss and regret that follows the Sabat pack known as the Nothing. Join us with Becca playing Linda, a Milkavian anti-tribute, Craig playing Jake, a pander, Jordan playing Abigail, a Ravenous anti-tribute, Monica playing Jenny, a Shimizi, and Slavic playing Charlie, a Bruja anti-tribute, and Chris as the storyteller. If you'd like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter, at twin underscore cities underscore btm or on facebook and discord as twin cities by night we hope you enjoy so where we left off in the winter or more like in the fall of 1988 in montreal the pack known as the nothing which our players characters abigail jake jenny and linda are a member of found out that their pack ductus and pact priest Felix and Pia both had committed suicide, had basically stayed out when the sun came up on the roof of their haven and gave themselves over. And when they were discovered the next evening, there were two piles of ashes. When the players woke up, they felt this hole within them, knowing immediately that there had been a loss in the pack. Part of that mysticism that's tied to the Valdry. Many may not know that the Valdry is not just simply a blood bond when it comes to what you normally hear about in vampire games where if a kindred or a mortal has a drink of a vampire's blood three times their bond, but the Valdry is mystical in a way, never quite explained. Something about it is able to take a group of vampires, all with their individual motives and personalities and agendas, and make them a cohesive family unit almost, where normally two people who might not get along may jump in front of a bullet for the other person. So when those two connections were cut because two people committed suicide in their pack, it was felt immediately that evening when they woke up. I explained before in the prelude that Paya would go through these manic bouts of depression. She would explain it, and this may not be the full explanation behind it, but she would explain it as the fact that she knew her brother Felix was losing himself to the beast. One concept in Vampire the Masquerade, for those of you who may not know, is that all vampires start off on humanity. And depending on acts that they do and decisions that they make in their own life, that humanity could slowly start slipping away. Some vampires are able to learn another belief system, something that they can wrap their existence around and help control their beast. Not all vampires are able to learn a new path. It's a hard thing to fundamentally reinvent yourself. So with these manic bouts of depression, who knows what they're triggered by? And who knows if it was even just the fact that Felix could not learn a new belief system to control his beast. Eventually something happened. Now, like I also said before, Pion and Felix would seclude themselves, separate themselves from the pack during these bouts. And you guys would be left on your own, which I can imagine would be hard. What leads to my next question for all of you is, Finding out that evening, we could say that you guys went up on the roof and you saw these two pile of ashes there, and you knew instinctually that these were two former members of your pack. 
how did that hit you? And how would that change you as a character? Or how did the events change you as a character in the last year up until this part, up until when this happened? Let's talk, let's ask you, Jake. How has Jake fundamentally changed not only the buildup of the death of his pack leadership, but even, let's say, a month or two after that? Jake thinks that Pia and Felix maybe had the courage to do what he hasn't um, in the past few months and years. He has very good um, relationships with like the remaining members of his pack, but like when his the leadership just left him, he kind of probably felt anger. Like I want to say, like kind of pissed off because not so long ago they brought him into this family. They it's like they adopted a bunch of kids and then left and left all the kids alone in the house for to fend for themselves. He feels that it's like irresponsible. He's he's pissed now. He's he he still he has a family now, but it's like mom and dad left and there's no one there to take responsibility. He's angry, and this is partially fueled fueled by the fact that he never really had a high baldery for them in the first place. Um, He had a very traumatic embrace. That same night, he ate his family, his mortal family. They took all this stuff away. He was singled out by them. They told him many times that he was chosen for something greater. Why did he have to be chosen? They could have chose someone else if that was the case. I would say almost that's like a righteous anger, you know, just like feeling like, hey, they they destroyed your life. They brought you into this existence, which you don't feel comfortable. And then they are gone. And they didn't tell you guys. They didn't give you a heads up. Like you said, they left the kids, the inmates running the asylum pretty much at this point. Now is Jake, how has Jake, for lack of a better term, embraced his his, his new existence post-suicide two months afterwards? Is he Has there been a huge change from when he was embraced to now? Or like, if I was to ask you right now, say, Jake, tell me about who you are right now, two months after the suicide of Paya and Felix, as a person, what would you say? It feels like they're just, like they have for the past uh, two years, like they're playing house and there's really no reason for it other than the fact that he loves his family and they love him and they're the only ones in the world who can understand him. And there's really not a purpose for him anymore. And if someone were to come along and give them a purpose, he's not quite sure how he would take that. I think he's accepted what he is, and he's probably relied on his packmates to help sustain himself. Um, He has some pretty nasty flaws that uh, make feeding pretty difficult. And I'm pretty sure on more than one occasion, like he was probably at the point of passing out um, into torpor until someone fed him. And then he just feel terrible afterwards. So in a way he is, and I'm trying not to downplay like the situation, but he's relying on his three pack mates to be his new family, but also in a weird way, you're like a child to them. Like they like have to like make sure you feed and like a little sibling. And let me say that, like you're the one who might've been probably affected really the hardest from the suicide. I don't know. We'll talk to everyone, but they see that there's situation. <laughs> Abigail's like, I don't know about that, but we'll, like, but they have to ensure that you take care of yourself because of flaws you have that prevent you from feeding. The night of his embrace, he tried to commit suicide. He took that razor for the wallery with full intent to 
remove his life's blood and it wasn't working. He wasn't dying. And I mentioned earlier that he never had the courage to do what Felix and Paya did. And uh, that probably compounds his anger because these, these fuckers who brought him into it, they did have that courage. Oh man. So not only did they leave you, they have you, they left you feeling even more insecure about who you are and feeling that you're, that you're weaker than you feel you should be. Wow. Exactly. Deep shit. Abigail. So with this last like year and a half, two years up to the suicide of Paya and Felix, and even a couple months after, how has Abigail changed from the prelude to like now? Abigail has grown to love parts of herself that shouldn't be loved. And she has a very high vol. She had a very high vulnerability score for Felix. And I think that comes because she understood and he understood. They understood each other's internal anger and how to deal with that. Felix became sort of her mentor in a way. So she, she learned to cope with that. She focused heavily on out of game. We call that the disciplines, but about on her chemistry, on her animalism a little and on her fortitude also a little. Like she tried to get as much out of this new life that she got as possible. I would almost say too, that there was maybe like a, a kinship between you and Felix and the fact that due to your flaw or your clan flaw and kind of like the prestige that you have being like who your grandsire was that there's a very good potential that you're not going to have a great long storied history with the path of humanity that you might be in the same situation as him to apex predators whose 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 beasts recognize companionship and of course you got the valdry on top of that but like you said i like how you point out you're diving into disciplines because that was also you jumping into the, your existence with the beast. You know, a lot of vampires may not exactly want to focus on their discipline so much. So you to like openly work on that, openly get closer, especially being a member of the Sabbat and knowing about Cain and the whole looking, worshiping of Cain and looking as your, yourself being the sword of Cain. I was sure there was even some connection there. And especially I would know that Felix would probably tell you tales of like your grandsire, him nev never having met him, but, you know, tell you legends about war is and about Exul and, you know, the stories about that took place in the deep heartland of Mexico that are almost like these fables or, or, or tales that have like this weird ring of maybe they're not quite true or maybe they may be a little exaggerated, but you would hear these tales being told and knowing that you are an extension of that. So I could see that being a very close connection there. Now, with that high Valdry score you had with Felix, does that affect your view of the Sabbat as knowing that you're part of this like sort of cane? And what's your opinion when it comes to the sector? What, what, what are you looking at now at your family now that both Paya and Felix are gone? Do, how do you view your, your, your nucleus right now? I think that's difficult. In the beginning, it was mostly she got very, very sad. So where Jake got full angry, she got full sad. This mentor, this father figure, this person who knew everything about her and who she thought she knew everything about was all of a sudden gone. He did clearly not see the embrace as the gift it may have been, which stinks. Because, yeah, it is a gift and it should be preserved. 
So there was a lot of internal struggle with her for at least a couple of weeks directly after that, where she just had to figure out how to see this new thing. And after that, I think she tried to help in the household so as much as she could. Um, but being lost, she just feels let down. There is nobody that pick, that's picking them up. There's literally nothing for the nothing at the moment. Yeah, just you're kind of like suspended in the city that is a totally strange city in this existence that's a totally strange existence and just kind of waiting for whatever. Very good. So, Linda, I'm sure you know what question I'm going to be asking here. So, how has Linda changed in the last year and a half, like the pre suicide, post suicide, a couple months? Like, how is she different? How is she how she processed everything. What is Linda like right now compared to the prelude? So in some ways she's remained the same, that, that level of professionalism, being a counselor and wanting to take care of the mental health of those around her has remained the same. Like that's always been a passion in her life and now on un- life, but it's been skewed because her brain's not working the same way anymore. She views it through a completely different lens. And even even to the point where her behaviors have started to become different and like they just don't make logical sense anymore. And I think it's pretty quick and easy for the group to pick up on like she she perceives something that they don't. She'll she'll talk about the woman. I'm not sure if I have stated a name for her yet. She has changed how she dresses and it's like just all white, which is very inconvenient given that we, we drink blood. Um, So I imagine that she's just like constantly cycling through white clothes. Um, She has a, a necklace with like a quartz clear, that, that kind of crystal pendant on it. And she'll, She'll have like a whatever space she calls her own. She'll have like a little weird altar on it that has like decorative soaps on it. And, you know, like, and I'm thinking, especially with the 80s, you know how they did those like hard casts where like they're seashells. She specifically goes after those ones. So, so those are just like a couple of examples of how her behavior has changed. And, um, you know, once, once we get to, the night that they wake up and she realizes there's this gaping hole, like she would take time to sit at her altar and essentially pray in a way, but not to any known deity by any means. And you know, she, she'll be sad, but it'll just be that sadness that's just empty. And she, she sees what's going on and kind of slowly in the back of her brain as like time progresses she realizes this is the start of our story. Wow. Okay. So like a couple of things I want to take apart there with you real quick. The lady that you are talking about out of character is the lady that you saw during your embracing the, the African lady who, you, or the, the black lady that you saw walking throughout the crowd at different spots, wearing the white dress and everything like that. Now, when you say you wear white, Help me picture this. Is it just any style of clothing that you'll wear white? Or is there any specific style of clothing that you wear white in? Or is it just as long as it's white, you really don't care? It could be a dress, it could be pants, it could be whatever. But it's just, what does that whiteness represent that she wore white, that this lady you saw wore white? And that kind of like ties you to that. And that's who you're trying to have a connection with. Because obviously there was something there that you saw. Or 
is there anything else it represents or, or is it just represents that tie to that person that you had? So you hit it pretty right on. She doesn't know a ton about the woman in white. And as far as looks go, she would gravitate towards a dress, but it's, I imagine hard for us to go shopping as vampires. So most of the time it's going to be whatever white she can find. And she'll be very distraught if she can't dress in all white uh, to the point where like other people will have to help her out with that and move forward like a panic attack kind of thing. Like you get very anxious if you can't wear white and people will yes. not understand it. And you're just like, no, 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 no. And they got to like, they're probably used to it now, you know, but yeah. It's, you know how you have your toddler who like, they have that one shirt that they have to wear. Yeah. It's that yeah. it's very much that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or even teenagers get like that once in a blue moon, like you don't understand, mm-hmm. you don't understand. I need this. And yeah, for sure. So yeah. Um, it's definitely that. Given the choice, she would wear the dress. Otherwise, it's just whatever she can find. Two things I would like to expand on. One, you said it was more like an empty sadness. Like, what, what do you mean by like empty sadness? Is it like a sadness because you feel like you have to feel sad, but you really don't have, like, there's no heart to it? Or is it just like you're not quite, you don't feel super emotional sad? You just kind of feel like, oh, well, that happened and I'm sad, but it's not something that's like wrenching you apart or? I imagine it's a bit more like with her becoming a vampire where it was just that delayed reaction and learning to come to copes because uh, she had a 10 for Paya and a nine for Felix. So these, these two were very, very close to her um, and she cared about them a tremendous amount. And so when, when the, they would go into their weird depressive bouts, that would really affect Linda. So them not being there, it's, in some ways, it's like this weird relief because she's not having having to feel a certain way towards them. But at the same time, they meant so much to her that it's hard for her to process. For sure. It reminds me of someone close to me who was older, had to take care of their mother. And it was very hard on them when they had to take care of their mother because she had dementia and she had to be put in a home. And it was a really stressful time for this person that I know to where they had to deal with anxiety for like a year and a half, two years. They like affect, they lost like a lot of weight and you know, everything that comes along with that. And when their mother died, it was almost like this weird, like relief that happened. Uh, and it was almost like this period where like her anxiety started to subside. And then she was finally able to mourn like a few months after that, you know, when she was like kind of back on the normal wavelength that she was on before that. So I'm sure, like you said, especially you being the healer that you are seeing this all the time, you know, worry about them. And I don't, I was going to ask you and you can expand on that, like how she would try to help them during these periods or even if she could, but like that, yeah, that first, that sense of, okay, I can be myself, which, which ties to my final question. This is the beginning of your story now. Like, like, is that because you feel that yoke of burden removed from you now? I mean, you love them and you care about them. They're close to you, but the manic depressive episodes or, or pias would bring this pain and suffering on you. Now you're not going to feel that as much. So do you feel like you're feeling free now w- with them being gone almost? Perhaps on some level, but what what's actually going through Linda's mind is this isn't a terrible thing that just happened. But the lady is clearly guiding us in a new direction. So it's very much we're we're meant for grandeur going forward. There's something more to happen. 
And that maybe could tie into how you handle your pack, you know, like how each one's kind of handling a situation. Cause would I be wrong in assuming that you're trying to help your pack out in the best way that you can with your changed existence, but still that need to help people with their mental health and seeing the suffering that they're probably going through at this time. It's weird because in a way I see almost like, not that this is official, but I almost see like Abigail, like kind of stepping in, like, I'm going to be dad. And you kind of be like, I'm going to be mom. And you know, like I'm going to be, you know, temporarily as, as, as things get straightened out, you know, like you are kind of becoming the spiritual nexus of the pack. And she's kind of like, you know, becoming the leader or not the, the leader, but you know what I mean? She looked up to the ductus and she sees very similarities, you know, with him and everything like that. So, so Jenny, in this year and a half since before the suicide and after the suicide of Pia and Felix, how has Jenny changed? And this is the one that I'm probably not ready to hear yet because I'm like kind of feeling that there's going to be some Jenny changes going on with what you described before in the character creation session. So go ahead and tell me, how has Jenny changed since the events of the prelude? Jenny has gone through a wide array of feelings towards everything. She wasn't particularly close to their leaders, particularly Paya, but she could see that other people like Abigail were close. So when they were gone, she kind of went through an emotional roller coaster. On the one hand, they were the first ones to help her accept that her change was a gift. And they went through all these adventures in their time together where Jenny sort of came to accept who she was now and let go of her old life for embrace towards the new one. So if this life was so great, why were they so quick to end it? You know? So there's confusion on that front. There's also a bit of hesitation on her part because now she thinks they had all those secret times that they spent together where nobody else in the pack was allowed to be near them. What if they knew more, you know, what if they knew something that the rest of them didn't know, something that was coming, some sort of threat, and it was something that frightened them so much, they ended their own lives. So now we're here, like Jake had previously mentioned, kind of like lost children. We don't know what comes next. We were just enjoying our embrace, and all of a sudden, we feel completely lost. She sees Abigail and her sorrow, that deep, deep sadness. She sees Linda which to her just looks like complete madness. Like she's just lost it all. She sees Jake's rage and, you know, complete futility in his own life, in his own own life. And it kind of makes her feel like even though she didn't personally care one way or another towards the, the two that committed suicide, it definitely broke her family up. So now she sees them trying to put the pieces back together and find their way as a family. Damn. First thing I want to tackle is your fear of what Pia and Felix may have witnessed. To rewind a little bit to the prelude, and I would say that you probably remember this, this probably add to that anxiety, is the fact that you heard that they did something to, to earn the right to have a pack. You know, at the beginning when that old priest without the eyes was speaking, he was saying they were being rewarded by Vidar, by this arch, by Bishop Vidar for things that they had done. So you know that there was like a pre-family life that these two were involved in. I would tie it to almost like this, and this is just on my personal experience here, is that my parents' existence before me 
to this day, I'm 42 years old to this day is somewhat of a mystery to me. Like I know certain things, but like I could talk to my mother right now. I could go and call her and probably find out more shit. I never knew about my mom growing up or never knew about my dad growing up. And that's from my experiences in life seems to be not the norm where most people know their parents well. And the parents kind of share life lessons and being like, this is what I learned growing up and kind of instill this upon their children. So to me, looking back, there's still to this day, my father is no longer on this, uh, on the, on this world. And so there's a lot of stuff. Like I don't know about him. I probably never will. I continuously will hear secondhand stories. Do I feel a need to know that? No, not exactly. But I could see when I was younger, there was this whole mystery side of him. And I used to, in my own head, sometimes, especially once my parents divorced when I was younger, like I would make up shit in my head. You know, I would think of these grandiose visions of what my dad was like and all this stuff. And, 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 or even when I got older, think about my mother and what she was like in high school and how she must have been this beautiful, smart person before life got its claws in her and all this stuff. Where you're having like a different reaction to that. You're having like, oh, fuck, what were they part of? What did they witness? What made them do what they did? And now I'm in an existence. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, it's basically like being a child of the mafia. Somebody gets shot down. You know that they were into something shifty, but you don't exactly know the repercussions that are now coming towards you and your family just because you were associated with them. So now are you, is your concern more for the, like you said, the safety of your immediate family here? Or are you wanting to answers? Are you wanting to find out more what's going on? Or is it just like, hey, these three are hit by this hard. I really did, didn't really feel that close to these two, but I'm worried about these three because these are my new family. Is that what it is? Or is it, is it more of a big picture fear? It's got to be both because on the one hand, particularly towards Jake, she's very attached to him and she would do anything to protect him. And seeing how broken he was and how upset Abigail was, those are the two in particular that she's most worried about. So not only does she worry what's coming for all of them, you know, herself, Linda, and the rest of them, but also the more you know, the better prepared you can be to face what's coming. So there's a very deep need in her to investigate what brought them to this point where they decided to take their own lives and how bad could it possibly be so that she knows whether or not her and her family can kind of remain safe or are they facing essentially the same danger i want to talk about you and jake right now you are a family woman and that has a that's a pretty shitty thing that happened to jenny with her spouse kind of like thinking of himself before her kind of making her assume this role jake has stated in the character creation session that he feels bad about what he made his wife go through because in a way he was going down that similar path that your husband went down with you and there's this weird redemption arc because you both got very high Valdery roles for each other, which is kind of ironic how this game works, but it's the awesomeness of a Sabat game. And I'll let you both kind of freestyle this, or at least you could talk from your perspective and I could ask him, what has the relationship been like between you two since all this? On Jenny's end, I would say as soon as she changed, she kind of shed her skin of her old life, so to speak, with, well, some minor... Um, things that she kept with her, some minor neuroses that she kept with her. But as far as, you know, the worries of her husband and her children, she kind of just shed that weight off, like coming out of a cocoon as a butterfly towards a completely new life. Um, she saw partly in Jake that bit of her husband that she didn't like, but seeing Jake's reasons for why 
he left his wife for work, et cetera, made her a bit more understanding towards her husband's situation. I would say that's why she was able to let it go as best as she was able to. But now seeing how broken Jake is, she sees him kind of similar towards Abigail. Abigail, because she's younger, she sees her kind of like as, as a daughter that, you know, at first she was kind of strange, but now that she's seen how deep her grief has gone, but also how willing she is to accept her new life, she feels very strongly towards her. And with Jake, because he resembles something of her past life, she's connected to him. But at the same time, she really wishes that he would accept who he is now, because in her opinion, the undead life is just so much better. And she doesn't understand in a way why he's so hesitant to accept it. Now, let me ask you, Jake, she's given her perspective on your relationship with her. Give us yours. Well, you... Previously, like Amora has described the Valdery as you are just completely in love with several people at once. And and it's the same like in this pack to greater or lesser degrees, depending on the individual dyads. Kind of like a like an almost like a mirror yin yang image to what uh Jenny is thinking about Jake. Jake kind of like sees Jenny as like this beautiful thing. And he knows that she is trying to evolve sort of and become something else. She's been like, they probably confided like their mortal lives at some point. And when he learned that she went through all these things that changed her body to get control, Jake probably feels like you're you're beautiful just the way you are. You don't need to change. So that leads kind of to my final question for Jenny. How has, has Jenny physically changed? I mean, she doesn't have to. Don't feel like the pressure, like, you know, that she has to. Not that's fine. But with her knowing uh, vicissitude and all that, has she changed at all her appearance? Or is it kind of like more of an internal change going on with her right now? Oh, Chris, she's definitely changed. Um, With Jenny, that is the one thing, like I mentioned earlier, that she just can't quite let go of her mortal life. It's pretty much her own psychoses as a human that she carried with her is this obsession with thinness with her newfound gifts. I would say that Jenny has brought her body to be almost, I would say Kate Moss, like just very almost skeletal in a sense. And that's where she finds herself to be beautiful. Now, obviously for the time period, uh, the nineties, that was, unless you were on the cover of a magazine that that's not really how people look like. And even to this day, it's not what people look like. So it does tend to make her stick out a little bit because she looks almost frail in a way, but she can't see herself as looking any better than she does now. She finds this obsession of hers with thinness, a point of content with Linda, who's kind of always trying to be her therapist, but And even Jake could tell her she's beautiful just as she is. Abigail could tell her, hey, you're looking a little weird. And Linda could psychoanalyze her all day. But to her, she feels stunning, you know, and the lighter she gets, the better she feels. When I was in my early 20s, Fiona Apple was like this big thing. And I never understood how guys lost their mind for Fiona Apple. Because when I saw Fiona Apple, I saw a malnourished sickly looking person who was extremely too fucking skinny to, to, that did not look healthy and that's why i picture when you say that like like someone who's trying who 
I don't know. Some may think is attractive, but a lot of people be like, God, you poor, you know, you poor thing, like eat something, you know, do you show that off? Do you wear clothing to accentuate the thinness that you have? Or is it just something that you could wear a sweater and jeans, but you know, you're like the sickly frail thing when you look in the mirror and you see your ribs and you're able to use vicissitude to make yourself thinner. With Jenny, I would definitely say that although she feels she looks good, she still has that fear that she could look better and she would worry if people saw her that they could think she would still be overweight somehow. So while Linda wears all white, Jenny does the opposite and she wears the ever slimming color black to kind of hide the, the thickness that she doesn't have, but she still sometimes perceives. She definitely wouldn't wear anything revealing. She's kind of like mom jeans through and through. So mom jeans and a, and a baggy t-shirt, black. That's how she would roll. I picture visually this pack now. I, I, two more questions before we get the story going here. How does Abigail dress now You know, with the change? How does she look? You know, Linda wears like all white. Jenny kind of wears all black now, looks very emancipated or, or um, very skinny. What, what, what is, how does Lin- Abigail dress now? Abigail it has not let go of her gothic background. So she still wears a lot of black. And has since mixed that in with a bunch of leather because she has taken up uh, motor lessons as well. And one thing that really stands out, which I didn't mention before, is a very small glass vial that's hanging on a chain around her neck, which contains ashes. And would that be the ashes of both Felix and Paya? Or would that be what you thought was Felix or kind of what you felt drawn to was Felix on on the roof there? Yeah, it was whatever pile screamed Felix to her. And I would say that you were able to you were able to distinguish that just from like right away without even hesitation. You knew. Now, Jake, if someone was to see Jake on the street, how would he look? I mean, plaid never really goes out of fashion. It just there's these times when it's more in fashion. He probably wears a very similar style, but he's kind of irked like if there's it's been a little like a year and like you have your favorite um, clothing and you realize like they don't make that cut of jeans anymore or it's like oh man uh i can't find acid jeans anywhere or like he actually have to wear jeans that fit rather than having those really skinny ones but like his look has stayed all the same one thing that he definitely had kept is his wedding ring and I think when he's nervous, he kind of plays with it. How does that make Jenny feel when she sees him play with the wedding ring? Does she have issues that he's still tied to his... I mean, not saying your relationship's romantic with him, but when she sees him like think about his wife and everything like that, does it bug her at all or not really? Definitely bugs her. I would say in the beginning, it was because he just couldn't let go as easily as, for example, Abigail and Linda seemed to. It seems like the three of them have been able to really embrace who they are while Jake is always kind of struggling and living with the past that he should really put behind him. But on the other hand, she understands that he did something that she didn't do towards his old family. So she's understanding in a way. But, you know, when he twirls that ring a bit, when she sees him touching it, there's definitely an eye roll of just let it go. You have a much better family now. and. For all you know, you you would have never had this if you had your wife still with you. So she thinks it's great that he did away with his old family, 
but she hates that he still kind of lingers there. Not that it's necessarily a romantic thing, although she does place a lot of, you know, similarities with her and Jake and with their previous spouses. But she just wishes that he could accept who he is and let go of the people that are already gone. Wow. That's some deep stuff. So thank you for the insights, everyone, of your characters and everything. I was wondering, like, how, you know, we talked about the buildup of your characters, but I was interested in seeing how all these events kind of, like, led to where we're at now, which is going to be the official start of this story. So one evening, you guys find yourself in this graveyard in Montreal. You're all following this pale figure who's walking ahead of you. It's a woman. She has blue jeans on, tucked into black combat boots. She has a jean jacket on that has a symbol painted on the back in red paint. Occasionally, she'll turn and look at you all to ensure that you're following her. She's very pale and has almost bleach blonde hair, very pale blonde hair that flies in the wind as she turns and looks. Occasionally, she'll take the hair out of her eyes and put it behind her ears, and then she'll turn around and continue walking forward. You can feel the coldness of the fall wind making its way through these different tombstones and mausoleums. Leaves are trickling along with the wind, getting caught on the side of tombstones, piling up. You can smell from the far distance the smell of burnt leaves, as if someone is burning a pile in some private residence. The night sky is sharp. You see the stars coming through with no cloud coverage overhead. But you know soon it's probably going to snow here. But you continue to follow this figure. The reason you're following her is because this evening she came by your nest and she told you that the Archbishop of Montreal wanted to speak to you. His name is Sangris. You've only seen him once when you first came, still riding high off this newfound family and relationship that was started with you, Paya, and Felix. And it was a quick informality where you came to this location, still riding high, still seeing these stars brighter than before, still experiencing everything new. But it was just a quick acknowledgement and you were on your way and you never saw him again. But now this is different because now you don't know what you're walking into. She leads you to this mausoleum where on the outside, it looks like you five would not be able to fit in there. But you know that within this mausoleum and the bowels of this ground lies the Temple of Eternal Whispers, which you know is where Archbishop Sangres holds court. This figure, she opens the door of this mausoleum. You hear it creak open. And you see within the figure of coffins almost that are on the sides. And you don't see when she walks up to the wall, but you know what's to come. She presses into the wall gently. And you see that a door soon appears as it pops gently open, but it looks to be part of the cement wall to the normal eye. And she slowly pulls it aside as it slides to the side. And you guys see steps that are going down. And you can see shadows casting their way along the walls that you know come, are coming from torches that are come down below. And as you follow this figure down these steps, you hear your footsteps echo as you turn and you continue to go down. And you see another turn and you continue to go down these steps following her. So you get to this small enclave where you see this black onyx statue in front of you. You saw this before, but now maybe it has a different meaning. It shows a figure naked with a beard and hair. And you see a stone that looked like it had smashed it on this figure's head below him. And you see the figure below him laid out on the ground, dead. 
And on these two onyx figures, you see red splashes, what could either be red wax from candles that are resting on different parts of the statue or on blood that, you know, some give and reverence to Cain, who the statue represents. And you see in the corner of this little enclave is a torch that's lit there. And you guys turn from there and you go down a small hallway into this vast opening. And when you step into the opening, you're caught off guard because you realize it is full of people. You see on the other end of this room where you can't see the end of it, but you assume it's circular because the end you are on is circular. You see shadows of figures that are standing about there and you see a large chair and you see a figure sitting in that chair. And you notice it's very dark on that end. There's not a lot of light. You see there's torches kind of by where you're at, but not where these people and this figure's at. The woman who led you in kind of steps aside as you four are standing here looking at this figure. He is sitting on this chair. He has black dreadlocks that are going on the side of his face. And he looks like he was African before he was embraced. But you can't quite make out his eyes because he has sunglasses on. He's wearing black pants and probably a black leather jacket, but he's sitting comfortably on there. His skin is ashen almost. And he looks at you four and he says, I know you suffered a loss recently. You have been here aimless. I want to give you an opportunity to make yourself whole again. Do you want that? Or do you want to follow Pia and Felix wherever they may be? He just kind of looks at you quietly after he says it. I think in a moment, to, so that his like facial features aren't really known, Jake kind of blinks, and when he, his eyes open again, his eyes are red with the eyes of the beast, so he can get a better look at what's going around, but mostly so like he thinks that uh, since it still looks so weird to him that people or vampires perceiving him would have a harder time reading his reaction to that. You see uh, straight ahead of you, there's this figure sitting on this chair, and you just see there's about 20 or 30 other people looking at you all, almost like a court of his, where 15 are one end and 15 are the other end. But you get the vibe that they're all gravitating around him. I have an offer to make. Would you be interested in my offer, or do you wish to follow Paya and Felix? At the mention of the offer again, Abigail will definitely slowly start to nod. And once he's done speaking, she'll say, we're at least interested in your offer. She is interested in my offer. You see him turn and look to his right. And he looks back. You see a smirk on his face. Here is my offer. I need you to go to a city. And I need you to find people who have stopped communicating back to me. Listen, I will give this to you for free, young ones. A little history lesson. There are two cities that have always been a glimmer in people like me and other people in the Sword of Cain's eyes, but something we have never quite been able to achieve. These two cities are in a state in the United States called Minnesota, Minneapolis and St. Paul. They are the twin cities they are called. And back 40 years ago, we tried to take them, our sect, and we failed. And ever since then, Different people in our sort of king have tried to make our way back into those cities and figure out something we could do to maybe try again, get them. There has been a pack there for the last 10 years who have embedded themselves into these twin cities. 
Their purpose is simply to watch, to disrupt, and to quietly send information back. And they have stopped reporting. We got, for lack of a better term, a distress call from a revenant that serves one of them. I want you to go there and find out before anyone else does. Here is my offer. You go there. You find out if they are still alive. If they are still alive, you bring them back here. If they are not alive still, you find out what they knew. And you come back here and you tell me. If you do that, I will let you bring two more into your pack. It has crossed my mind to simply wipe you out. I do not like aimless canines in my city. But you've been behaving yourselves. Now if you fail me, if you choose to run off and not do this, I will find you. And I will destroy you. And you will be with Pia and Felix. That is my offer. Do you wish to accept it? He's looking straight at you, Abigail, seeing that you spoke on their behalf. At the mention of Felix, Abigail's hand will quickly wrap around the vial on the end of her necklace. But before speaking for the pack again, she will turn to them and look at them, saying like, with big eyes in this case, because she heard that he was planning to kill them. Well... It is time that we fulfill our destiny. Jake just kind of looks at Linda, then looks at the floor. Jenny looks at Abigail as if, you know, shaking her head lightly, like, why did you have to say anything? But she looks at the man speaking to them and just very softly nods, trying not to look too interested, even though she is. But she's very hesitant due to the mention of their demise. And then Abigail will turn back and say, We, the nothing, will accept your offer. Good. If you're enjoying Vampire the Masquerade, Twin Seas by Night Sorrow, I would highly recommend Vampire the Masquerade, Twin Seas by Night Dread, our third story arc and most often cited by listeners as their favorite. 